2: Dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp com slash sacred text. Chapter 9: Grim Defeat. Professor Dumbledore sent all the Gryffindors back to the Great Hall, where they were joined 10 minutes later by the students from Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin, who all looked extremely confused. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And I'm Matt Potts.
2: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our every-flavored bean this week for our patrons was your idea. Do you want to tell people about it?
1: Yeah, I have a question about the Patronus and the Animagus. Like, what's the relationship between the form one takes if one is an Animagus and the Patronus one casts if one casts one? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is where the question comes from, Vanessa. I have personally thought a lot about what my Patronus would be, mm-hmm. but I've never thought about what animal I would be if I were an Animagus, and that's what I want to talk to you about.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What
1: animal do you think I'd be? What animal do I think you'd be? What do we think we'd be?
2: Okay. I'm very excited for this conversation, Matt. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter's Sacred Text. And if you don't join us on Patreon, we're still so happy to have you here and want to know what your Patronus is and then also want to know what your Animagus is. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story, and you are telling us one about the theme of rehabilitation.
1: Yeah. In November, just a few months ago, I broke my foot. I'm not a basketball player. Nonetheless, I was playing basketball because my son Danny demands that I be a basketball player frequently throughout the week because he wants to play basketball outside. And in order to keep things exciting, we were running plays, you know, bounce passing to each other, and I lowered the rim to, you know, eight feet so I could dunk on it and impress my eight-year-old son. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the play that we were performing quite expertly in early November is an alley-oop. For those who are not followers of basketball, an alley-oop is when one player passes the ball to very close to the rim, and the other player jumps up into the air, grabs the ball in the air, and dunks it all in one fluid motion. Mm -hmm. So Dan and I were practicing the skill I bounced past to him. He dribbled around past some imaginary defenders, and then he tossed the pass up towards the rim, and it was my job to dunk it. Grabbed the ball in the air, slammed the ball down hard onto the side of the rim where it bounced off, ricocheted out of the driveway, and I fell quite awkwardly on my right foot and broke my foot. Danny was traumatized because, like, I couldn't get up, and he was like, oh, what happened, Danny. And I think also disappointed that I missed the shot. Had I made the <laughs> shot, you know, it may be worth it. But totally. it, basically I failed in every way. Yep. So this was a significant injury. I broke the fifth metatarsal. It wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it was worse than nothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was worse
2: than you wanted it to be.
1: Worse than I wanted it to be. Yeah. And so I was on crutches for a while, then I was in a boot for a while. They wanted me to to use a knee walking scooter, but I refused. And you know what happened is what happened. It just over time it healed. It just slowly got better. And now You know, this morning, I went for a run, right? And everything is pretty much better. I did the exercises they they told me to do. I rehabbed. I went to see a physical therapist and a podiatrist, and I did the rehab, right? But the thing that's interesting about it and why I tell this story is that functionally, my life is pretty much the same as it was before I had the injury. I can jump and play basketball. I still can't alley-oop, but I don't try anymore. The difference is, if you look at an x-ray of my foot, still, you can see the break. And... The doctor said they'll be able to see that break for at least two years and maybe always. And when I went running this morning, and even just when I get out of bed sometimes in the morning, my foot aches on the right side. And another doctor told me, like, yeah, you'll probably just feel that ache all the time, (laughs) right? And maybe forever, right? It's just going to be a place of mild discomfort, maybe because you broke a bone there. The word rehabilitation comes from the Latin word habilis, which means to be able. So rehabilitate means to make able again. It doesn't mean restoration. It doesn't mean like complete reversion to the way it was before it was broken, which is what I would like for my foot because I would like to not feel any pain ever, right? Mm -hmm. That wasn't the goal when I started rehabilitation, and it's not even a realistic goal for my foot anymore. It's not... It's not reversion to the past or restoration of what was. It's just like, we can make you able again with your broken foot, right? And that's, a, that's an interesting way to think about rehabilitation. Thinking about rehabilitation that way makes us think about the process, not as one by which we recover a lost past or the way things were, but rather as a process by which we learn to live and to function with the world as it is, right? Even if it's broken in some parts and in some places.
2: Yeah, Matt, I'll throw in a little bonus story about Casper, who I was just with and who these listeners probably know, which is he and I were just discussing this because he had a big injury where he fell off of a pier and almost died. And there was a helicopter rescue, as I'm sure many of our listeners remember. And he considers himself entirely rehabilitated, except psychologically, right? We were mm. in a high tower and he is profoundly scared of heights. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize you were scared of heights. And he was like, oh, ever since my fall. And I was like, that yeah. makes sense, right? So like there are ways in which we can feel rehabilitated and other ways from the same injury that we will never feel rehabilitated.
1: Yeah, that's right. Vanessa, are you ready to recap this chapter in 30 seconds? I'm ready. Then let me cut you in. On your mark, get set, go.
2: So it's a sleepover in the Great Hall, and Snape is like, hey, Dumbledore, don't you think it's a person who rhymes with schmoopin', who let in... serious? And Dumbledore's like, no, I don't. And then there's a Quidditch game and all these Dementors come and Harry falls off of his broom and he almost dies. But Dumbledore softens the blow. And um, Dumbledore's also really mad and sends a Patronus, but we don't know it's called a Patronus yet. And the broom dies.
1: You spent a lot of time on the schmoopin'. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> scene, which I is I got
2: into my own head.
1: <laughs> I know not where, which is where I usually am in this. It's it's not where I would have spent most of my focus in the chapter, like on the joke mm-hmm. with Lupin's name. But I liked it; it made me very happy. Which is what, what <laughs> to this watch is for. me
2: struggle with what rhymes with Lupin? <laughs>
1: no, I just love. I love that you were like, I actually don't care about recapping this, this chapter. I just want to make a joke about Schmupin about this exchange, and I I like that you make that choice. That's great
2: it wasn't a conscious choice it's important for our listeners to know that i wasn't like do you know what i don't care about it i'm committed to this bit i just started talking and a bit came out and i lost control of it matt are you ready yes on your mark get set go
1: So they gather up all the houses, and they go into the Great Hall, and Dumbledore makes sleeping bags. And then uh, they walk around and can't find Sirius Black. Uh, And then it's the next day in Potions, not Potions, in Dark Arts, and Snape's there, and Snape's very, very mean. Uh, And then they find out that Malfoy doesn't want to to play Quidditch, and so they, Oliver's like, we gotta go play Quidditch in bad weather, and they play Quidditch in bad weather, and it goes really poorly, and Cedric gets the snitch because a bunch of um, Dementors come, and, and chill out Harry, and then uh, the the broom gets broken on the Whomping Willow. Chill out Harry. Did you like that? That was not what I meant <laughs> to say. He was not super relaxed when they came. I meant that that he became very cold. So... <laughs> That's
2: the way someone who grew up in the 80s says he became very cold. (laughs) They were totally bone
1: to Harry. That's right.
2: (laughs) Well, Matt, should we start with the end of the chapter? Because Harry has to go through a form of rehabilitation at the end of this chapter. Yeah. But I actually think that his injuries and the time that he's spending in the hospital might actually be different than rehabilitation. I think it's healing,
1: Hmm. Interesting. Right? Okay. Because yeah.
2: he's not injured in a way that he won't to your definition come back from entirely, right? When you bruise yourself, you don't need rehabilitation. You just need time and it'll go away. And so I think that Harry's injury at the end of this chapter it, and this is thanks to Dumbledore's intervention, right, of softening the blow before Harry hits the ground, but yeah. If it had been a worse injury, he would have had to go through rehabilitation. But because of the kind of injury it was, what he needs is just to rest and it will heal entirely.
1: This is the interesting thing about medical care in the wizarding world, right? When he breaks his arm in book two, that rehabilitation is also a restoration. Mm -hmm. The bone is removed and then Madame Pomfrey regrows the bone, right? Which is a very painful process, we're told. But it's one which is effectively a restoration, so I think you're absolutely right, Vanessa, but I also like kind of calling back to the story you told about Casper and his fear of heights. I, you know, I think that Harry's relationship to the Dementors is one which is lasting, even if he's physically healed, right? He was, he was unsettled, totally. at least, in the train. And even though the chocolate that Lupin gave him and the care he got made him feel better physically, he's been scared about these Dementors since and scared about being scared of the Dementors since. And so... The rush of the Dementors onto the field, although they would have affected anyone, I think, and probably affected other people on the pitch, were tapping into something within Harry that has not been fully resolved or rehabilitated. Because in the kind of definition of rehabilitation that I gave, which is about regaining ability rather than simple restoration, he's not really able to get close to Dementors or, like understand why they affect him the way he does, or he hasn't learned that yet, which is, this is all stuff he's gonna learn later, right, from Lupin in this book. So yeah, I think physically, rehabilitation's not going on here. I think he still needs some emotional or spiritual or soulful rehabilitation. And that, yeah, that that's waiting to be to be offered to him.
2: Yeah. Especially because there's an additional trauma. It's not simply that he falls off his broom. It's also that he... I I think literally hears his mom screaming for help, right? And that seems to speak to me, if I'm understanding the magic of this, that somehow that is like deep in Harry's subconscious because it's not, that the dementors, it's not priori incantatum, right? Where you hear things that have previously been said. It must be that on some level, one-year-old Harry absorbed what was going on, which, you know, is an interesting thought, you know, and one that I think neurologists and psychologists don't understand about childhood. We certainly understand that you know, if if you're given certain kind of love and attention as a baby, that's healthier for brain development than if you're not. But also, you know, things that you didn't understand when you were little, especially before language development, did you really even subconsciously understand them? Yeah. But the book seems to be taking a pretty firm stance on yeah. that, that yeah. Harry somehow deeply remembers this moment of terror and horror, which is why the Dementors affect him so much more than everybody else, because he sort of has the most traumatized past of anybody, any child at Hogwarts. And so, yeah, this question of rehabilitation and, right, like secondary trauma, I think is really fraught in this chapter.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I think bringing the question of trauma in, especially Harry's trauma, but Harry's trauma as a way for us to think about the relationship between trauma and rehabilitation is really important because cuz that's the nature of trauma, right? Like the what makes a traumatic event different than other very painful events is the traumatic event revisits us later on, right? And so rehabilitation in the in the context of post-traumatic conditions or in the context of of trauma is not returning to a place before the trauma happened, or even where the traumatic revisitation doesn't affect you, it's learning to deal with the effects so you, you can remain able to to function in a in a useful way. Right. And that's that's a it's a sad and you know it's a it's an unhappy rehabilitation because you don't get to undo or remove the traumatic event, just like Harry doesn't. He's going to have these voices and these memories all throughout these books. Right. It's about being able to bear them and move through them when they arise.
2: Which is also why, you know, something that I really admire about language around addiction is that it's called recovery, right? You live in recovery, essentially in rehabilitation for the rest of your life. So it's not something that, you know, happens and then you're done with it, right? right? It is a constant state of rehabilitation that you're in. And I don't know why I think that there's something very moving And generous and realistic about that framework, even though it also, I think, can be quite overwhelming. The idea, you know, whether it's, oh, my gosh, my foot is going to hurt for the rest of my life or I will never not be an addict. I think that it can feel really oppressive when we confront these things that we are just going to be rehabilitated from, but not healed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the example of my foot's a lot more trivial than of these course, other examples, yeah. right? But but I think that we could also scale it up to the level of the social, right? Like we can think about what mm-hmm. does it mean to rehabilitate from a, a social trauma like, you know, the institution of slavery or a genocide, right? The idea of moving past is probably not the right idea because if we move past it, that means like, oh, there's a thing in the past and now we can live free of it. Actually, these social events make societies what they are, just like these individual events make us who we are. And moving forward means living with them in a way that allows us to live the way we want to live, right? Like aware that that we are going to be constantly attached and fettered to these these traumatic events, but still free to move forward into the kinds of futures that we hope to make for ourselves, right?
2: Which is where I think that I can start to have some sympathy for Snape. Snape, again, full-fledged jerk in this chapter. Yeah. And I never would have thought of this if this wasn't our theme this week, but he is somebody who, to some extent, came to Dumbledore all these years ago and was like, help me rehabilitate myself. And Dumbledore was like, sure, but the way for you to do it is by still acting a certain yeah. way, right? And he isn't able to practice that rehabilitation that he sort of feels in his heart, right? Like it's almost like he's not able to do those physical therapy exercises, right? Because yeah. he has to pretend to not be doing them. And so it almost gives me sympathy for this moment where he's somewhat trying, right? We talked about this last week. To make Wolf Bane for Lupin and to maybe rehabilitate his relationship with Lupin. But then in this chapter, he essentially outs Lupin as a werewolf because Lupin is sick. He is in wolf form. And so Snape needs to substitute Teach, Defense Against the Dark Arts. And Snape just like walks backwards so many steps in this like potential rehabilitating their friendship or their relationship process. He has everybody turn to the last chapter of the book and is like, werewolves talking about this for no reason at all. Please write these essays and turn them into Lupin about how you will now be able to tell what a werewolf is, right? It's it's an act of real violence outing somebody, even just hinting at it.
1: Not just recognize a werewolf. He says both to recognize and kill werewolves, right? So he's actually training the students to- be prepared to to murder their teacher <laughs> right which is yeah it's it's very it's very low i mean i think you're right I mean, there are all these kind of angles on rehabilitation that that we can think about and we have you know in the case of harry his physical rehabilitation also this kind of spiritual or emotional rehabilitation or psychological rehabilitation i think you're right with snape there's really a moral rehabilitation which is going on right he comes to dumbledore and says like I need to rehabilitate myself morally. I have betrayed the only person I really loved. How do I get back from this? And, you know, Dumbledore's answer is, you don't really get back from this. She's gone. But there's some things you can do in the future, right? And that's what Snape is trying to do. But also, he's he's still the same person. He's still got this brokenness. And he's not always able to do it. And this is one of those situations where he's he's not, because he does, like, a truly evil thing to, to Lupin. When you... Note the fact, as you know, we have that that he actually is teaching the students how to murder Mupin.
2: And then I know that this is lesser than teaching the students how to murder their teacher. But like <laughs> name calling a child as oh, yeah. an insufferable know-it-all is disgusting. The chapter goes pretty far out of its way to say, you know, Snape calls Hermione an insufferable know-it-all after she knows the answer and can't help but answer the question, even though Snape hasn't called on her. And the text says, right, everybody in this room had called Hermione an insufferable know-it-all, or at least a know-it-all at least once. And Ron makes a habit of doing it at least twice a week. And you're given the impression that Hermione essentially can take all that on the chin, right, and be like, whatever. But there is this thing about Snape, right, that makes it a totally different
1: injury. I think with respect to her peers, Hermione feels like she knows better than them and it takes pride (laughs) in it and it doesn't bother her as much, right? But she does it because, I mean, for her own sake, because she cares a lot about learning, but also because she respects the authority of teachers and wants to impress them, right? And so if if impressing teachers has the result of her peers kind of teasing, it doesn't bother her because she's getting what she wants. But when one of her teachers uses the same language towards her. Of course, yeah, context means everything because this is the opposite of what she wants. She's, she has a teacher disrespecting her and, and diminishing and belittling her. And I also think that the, the difference in that context is brought into greater relief when we see Ron, who's the person who says this most about her, of anyone, is also the person that immediately stands up for her to Snape, to his own detriment, right? And says, like, why did you ask if he didn't want to know the answer? If we were not allowed to answer, if she was not allowed to answer. Right. And he gets detention, what, for a month or whatever, because he did this. Even there, you can see the intent behind the teasing among the peers is really different. Like, Snape knows it's going to land harder and hurt worse than when the children say it. And that's partly why he does it. And also, yeah, I mean, I was really uncomfortable also with how Snape gets right up in Ron's face after... He says this, I think, yeah. In recent pages, we just had all the sympathy for Snape because he's making the Wolfsbane for Lupin and offering to make more if necessary. He seems like he's being a colleague, even, even if a begrudging colleague, a good colleague, a begrudgingly good colleague. And in this moment, his moral rehabilitation is confounded because he just does these really cruel things to children, all because he still has resentment towards Lupin for something that happened many, many years ago.
2: Yeah, and it's this really gross kind of resentment in terms of how it bears out, right? Because he is willing to help Lupin when it is kind of fun for him and makes him feel like a hero, right? He's like, I know how to make this potion. And so he can be collegial and generous. And now that it's sort of a burden to him of like, I have to substitute teach this class. He is much less generous about it. I, there's something that rings true about that, right? Where you can like wish well for someone, and then as soon as it becomes a burden to you, you're like, never mind, right? And become yeah. petty about it. And I think that this is instructive in terms of. How poorly, I mean, to make it about our theme, right? Yeah. Like how poorly these two have rehabilitated with one another. Yeah. It seems like they are past the point of the potential for reconciliation and forgiveness. Yeah. But in theory, now that they're colleagues, they should be able to find a new way to be together. And Snape is just completely failing at that.
1: Yeah, there's also just sort of an inability in, in Snape to to think about the interior and the emotional You know, he's constantly perplexed by Lily's emotions, I think, (laughs) and even by his Mm -hmm. own. And maybe there's something in him believing that he is caring for or being a good colleague to Lupin. He is willing to be a good colleague to Lupin because he's physically caring for him, right? He's giving him the physical things he needs, but he's still willing to humiliate him, right? And it's ironic that he would not see that kind of willingness to humiliate as also in need of rehabilitation, when the reason he bears so much hatred, both for Harry and for James and for Lupin and for Sirius, is because he was humiliated, right? And so it's this, right. it's this weird one-sidedness where he feels his own humiliation so acutely and so intensely and cannot let go of it. But he doesn't see the humiliation that he inflicts upon others, whether it's Lupin or these children in, in a class.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
1: I wonder if we could talk about Sirius and rehabilitation for a minute. Please. Because, you know, Sirius has escaped from Azkaban. Yep. And the Dementors are trying to round him up and either eat his soul or return him to Azkaban, whichever whichever they prefer, right? The reason I bring up serious is just in the American carceral system, the language of rehabilitation is often used, right? I, I used to visit a person in, in prison and I remember like when you walk into the waiting room, the visitor waiting room, there was a, a big motto about rehabilitation, right? What is meant by rehabilitation there is is certainly arguable and whether what they are calling rehabilitation is accomplished is uh, maybe less arguable just because it's it's false at least in my opinion but it's interesting to me that the the Azkaban prison seems to have no interest in rehabilitation this is not a space where folks are quote unquote you know made into productive citizens whatever that means right it's a space of pure terror and punishment and so it makes me think about Sirius's escape and the traumas that he has undergone and The erratic and violent behavior that we have seen from him in this chapter and in the previous chapter, even though it's indirect, we don't see him actually on the page, but we see the effects of it. I guess in this chapter he appears briefly. Just think, like, what does Sirius need to be rehabilitated, to be made like a functional person again after being betrayed by a friend, after being wrongly accused, after spending all these years in this place of absolute terror and trauma? He's got a ways to go and work to do, and. yeah, it just had me thinking about the irony of how American carceral systems use the language of rehabilitation, but are spaces of terror and trauma. Even though they use that language, whereas in the Wizarding world, there's none of that language. They're meant to be spaces of terror and trauma, and all the rehabilitation needs to happen on the outside. But who is there to support Sirius now?
2: Yeah, Matt, and I think that that question around rehabilitation of someone who we have, you know, deemed bad and criminal in whatever way is really clear in this moment where, you know, the kids have been sent to the Great Hall because Sirius has attacked the fat lady. And so the Gryffindors get moved to the Great Hall and then the whole school does because there's a belief that it's possible that Sirius Black is on the loose in Hogwarts. And (laughs) the kids are very safely taken care of by ghosts and Percy Weasley, thank God. And when the fat lady is attacked, none of the students are in the Gryffindor common room. Everybody is in the Great Hall because it's the Halloween feast. And one of the students says, effectively, you know, he must have not realized that it was Halloween because otherwise he would have come and killed all of us and attacked all of us in the Great Hall. And it's just so interesting that because his image has in no way been rehabilitated, there is just this belief in his guilt and idiocy, right? Nobody is saying, oh, but he came on Halloween because he knew no one would be in there. And so what was he maybe looking for in there if he knew every single student wouldn't be in the Gryffindor common room? And that actually by assuming such bad intentions, it keeps everyone from solving what's going on that much longer.
1: Yeah. This is another kind of framework or take on rehabilitation, right? There's we talked about physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, moral. There's also the rehabilitation of one's image, right? Because if rehabilitation is about, like, being able to do what you need to be able to do, the way we're perceived by others does work for us in the world, right? And when you lose that, it can be really constraining and difficult to rehabilitate. And and Snape is is wrestling with this now and is going to wrestle with it for the rest of his life, really. Like, not going to be trusted. And I mean, there are so many ways to go with image rehabilitation right because he's also disowned by his family because he loses his reputation with those who advocate for kind of pure blood supremacy whatever that is yeah
2: right it just speaks to how rehabilitating in one circle can mean hurting your image in another right serious his family was disappointed in him and sort of you know, turned him out as soon as he got sorted into Gryffindor. And certainly as he became part of the order rather than a Death Eater. But his image was later sullied in the eyes of the people that he respected. And so it's almost like you like having a bad reputation with certain people, right? That's right. You're like, no, no, no. Think poorly of me. I don't want my image rehabilitated by you. That's
1: right. I mean, the thing that really bothers me about Sirius in this chapter is... We can excuse so much of Sirius because he's been wrongly accused because he's been basically tortured for these 13 years. I don't like that he cuts up the painting. I know that maybe he's acting rationally in a certain sense and that he needs to get into that common room. And maybe he's not trying to hurt the fat lady. He just slashes the painting so he can have access. But, you know, he slashes the painting and terrifies the fat lady and she should be terrified, right? Yeah. And so it's it's not hard to understand why he's perceived the way he is by others around him because this is this is the way he emerges, reemerges into the wizarding world.
2: I mean, the other thing that's interesting about that is that there's actually a conversation about the fat ladies. I mean, the word used is restoration. Mm, but yeah, right? right, Dumbledore says, I think quite beautifully, it will wait until she is somewhat healed and then we'll have Filch yeah. restore her painting, right? Yeah. But there's this like, belief that she needs time before and is entitled to this time before filch is gonna attempt to restore whatever it was before
1: we probably have experts in restoration like art restoration among our listeners Yeah, but it's an interesting comparison right because you know i don't understand a lot about art restoration but from what i do understand it's a lot of cleaning and sometimes touching up right like the thing mm-hmm. that makes a painting different than my broken foot or than, you know, a broken event from our past is that in a painting, you can put a little more pigment on it and actually <laughs> make it look the way it once looked by by painting on it again. Right. With very careful and skilled restorers. Right. So restoration is possible with these kind of material artifacts in a way that it's and maybe with the fat lady in the way that it's not with bodies and minds and souls or or emotions or whatever else.
2: I mean, and it is and it isn't, right? Like now when I look at the Mona Lisa, I'm not looking at yep. only Da Vinci's brush strokes, right? right? So it is. it maybe looks the same as it did when Da Vinci painted it, but yeah. it is also still different than what yeah, he that's painted. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's actually, it's a great metaphor that yeah. we happened upon in this chapter where we arbitrarily yeah. assigned rehabilitation.
1: Yeah. That's great. Vanessa, this week we are using Lectio Divina as our sacred reading practice. Would you like to lead us through Lectio this week?
2: Yes, I would love to. Okay, I found one. Okay. Peeves puffed out his cheeks, blew hard, and zoomed backwards out of the room, cackling. Dun-dun-dun! Okay, step one of Lectio Divina. What is literally happening in this sentence?
1: So what what has literally just happened in the chapter is Peeves has awakened Harry very early in the morning. It's the morning of the Big Quidditch match against Hufflepuff that has been rescheduled because Malfoy uh, pretended that his arm has not yet been rehabilitated that he is not able to to play quidditch and got the slytherins out of what promises to be a very messy ugly quidditch match because it's in like just driving rain and the the gryffindor quidditch team is all worried about it especially oliver and maybe also harry and peeves just to be irritating shows up very early in the morning to make sure harry does not get enough rest and blows cold air upon him to wake him up and that's what happens. Harry wakes and then Peeves flies out of the room.
2: Yeah, Matt, excellent job. Why Peeves does this and how often things like this happen really stays vague to me. Yeah. Do you think he also did this to Oliver? I have so many questions. Did he also do it to Cedric Diggory? How many people is Peeves harassing?
1: Maybe this is why people like Peeves. I don't particularly like Peeves. I think Peeves is a bit of a jerk. But, I mean, Hufflepuff's the underdog. Throughout the chapter, even after Hufflepuff beats Gryffindor, they're like, oh, Hufflepuff will never beat Ravenclaw. I wonder if because of Peeves' affinity for chaos, he's going to try to mess up the favored team. He wants to mess with them and make them off their game just to, to increase chaos in the Quidditch tournament.
2: I love that theory. I love underdogs. Step two is what other stories does this remind us of? Peeves puffed out his cheeks, blew hard, and zoomed backwards out of the room, cackling.
1: So I have to be honest, Vanessa, about the story this reminds me of. There's a really terrible 1997 movie by Joel Schumacher called Batman and Robin, in which George Clooney plays Batman. And I saw that in the theaters in college, because I was in college then. And... Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Mr. Freeze, the main enemy, Mm. in that movie, that very terrible movie. So many Batman movies since then. So many Batman Mm -hmm. movies to come, I'm sure. I think this is one of the worst. Yeah. But Mr. Freeze, you know, has this chilly breath, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's all I can think of. I'm sorry. I wish there were a more meaningful (laughs) and fruitful association, but I'm just, I'm playing fast and loose with my associations as recommended by my co-host. What about you? What? story does this remind you of?
2: Well, I was reminded of Genesis chapter two, verse seven, obviously, in which it says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Interesting. And the man became a living being.
1: Oh, that's interesting. That Because, oh my gosh, I haven't studied this particular passage, but I believe that the, the Hebrew word for breath there is ruach which is which is translated into Latin as spiritus or spirit. Oh. So our English word spirit actually means breath. Like life is breath. Like that thing which goes on inside our material bodies, what it is is breath. That's the same thing as spirit.
2: If we think about sleep is death, right? Like, which I know the different cultures have thought about historically, there is something to me about peeves floating over and like giving, you know, blowing air as a way to wake Harry.
1: Yeah. You know, there's also something about maybe it's not on all on peeves. I mean, I feel like every time I need to sleep in, need rest. Without fail, I wake myself up early. Mm-hmm. Like whatever kind of dreamy anxiety I bear through the night just gets me up early, even though I need the rest. And once my eyes pop open, I can't doesn't matter how early it is, I can't fall back asleep. And maybe that you know, maybe peeves is this sort of like this kind of ghostly manifestation of the thing that many of us do. Like that, when we're worried about something, when we're so worried that we know we need to be rested for the big test or the big match tomorrow, or the big game tomorrow. For me anyway, that's when I'm most inclined to get up too early and not be able to rest just because I I'm so worried about needing it.
2: Well, that leads me into thinking about my step three, what it reminds me of in my own life. I might've told the story before on the podcast, but I was away one summer when I was like 14 or 15 for a couple of weeks. And when I came back, my brothers had a room on the second floor of our house. They shared a room on the second floor. And I had a room on the first floor of our house. And my mom had ceiling fans installed in her room and my brother's room. But because of where my room was, for some reason, I couldn't have a ceiling fan installed. And I was very upset about this, that everyone got one except me. But luckily... The ceiling fans that were installed in light fixture had a remote that my mom like hung on the wall next to my brother's room. And so I would go in and steal the remote and turn the light on, like at five in the morning or midnight. and <laughs> And I would zoom backwards out of the room cackling. And that is what it reminds me of, is that great prank that I used to pull on my brothers a lot. What about you, Matt?
1: Uh, I mean, it's kind of related to my last comment, but we we're recording this just after the spring time change. And this happened a few days ago. And every night since it happened, Danny has come into our bedroom just freaking out. Like, I'm not sure if he doesn't really understand where the hour went, but he's worried he's not going to get enough sleep every night. He's so worried that he's not going to get enough sleep every night that he comes into our room for hours crying because he's not getting enough sleep, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy because then he's he's in here crying about like, how come I, what am I going to do? When am I going to sleep? Where did this hour go? We changed time? How did we change time? And then he's up until too late and doesn't get enough sleep. And so it just makes me think about, you know, Harry, like needing the rest. We got to go tomorrow. It's going to be a hard day. We got to be ready. And... Almost because he thinks that Peeves shows up or in my life, you know, my unconscious shows up and wakes me up entirely too early and guarantees that I will not be well enough rested for the dementors who crowd under my broom, metaphorically, in the day to come.
2: Well, Matt, step four is what does this make us feel called to? And let me read you the sentence one more time. Sure. Peeves puffed out his cheeks, blew hard and zoomed backwards out of the room, cackling. I feel called to putting a little bit more whimsy in my life. I recently went over to my friend Matt's house, and he made me a peppermint mocha latte and put some green sugar on top. It was just a little whimsy, you know? And like turning off the lights while your brothers are studying, like nothing bad happens, just a little silliness. And I feel like a lot of the silliness in my life has gone away lately. So I'm going to inject a little silliness. Peter is going to love it. <laughs> Peter is my roommate. He's going to think this is fantastic news. What about you? What do you feel called to?
1: As Danny has been having trouble falling asleep because of the time change, for some reason, I've been getting up early which is not what you're supposed to do when you spring forward. You're supposed to get up later. And for some reason, I've been getting up an hour earlier than usual. So instead of getting up at six, I'm getting up at five, which is four. Four, And I'm not sure why. And so when I get up, I I do this kind of reverse judgment of Danny. I'm telling myself, like, I got to go back to sleep. This is it's too early. Right. You know, the best thing for at that moment is just to kind of let it go and relax and go, you know, just try to have a peaceful, quiet morning right, with the time I have, and just trust that things are going to work out. Yeah, I think what it calls me to do is just to be less uptight about sleep, both with Danny and myself, maybe.
2: Well, Matt, thank you so much for that great luck, Dio. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimald Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.
0: luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's now time for our voicemail, and this week, our voicemail's is from Isabel. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Sacred Text team. I just finished listening to the book three, chapter two episode as examined through the theme of ignorance. During my reread, I was struck by the narrator's statement that Harry had been forced to call Marge his aunt, even though they are not related by blood. This got me thinking about what it means to be family and the ignorance surrounding adoption. When I was in middle school, my beloved older brother passed away. Amongst dealing with the shock and grief of this loss was the added pain of several peers telling me they did not understand why I was so upset because since my brother was adopted, he was not in fact my real brother. As an adult, I might be able to brush off this sting as youthful flippancy if it were not for the fact that several friends who are considering having children have commented that they could never adopt because they feel they would not love the child as much. The ignorance surrounding adoption is heartbreaking. Every child deserves to be wanted, and not having a blood connection in no way makes a relationship less than. Harry Potter demonstrates the harmful impact of what happens when not being biological is seen as a barrier. Imagine how different Harry and Dudley's lives would be if they'd been raised as brothers instead of rivals. This blessing goes out to the Weasleys, Sirius, Lupin, Hagrid, and everyone who loves Harry as a son, regardless of heredity. This blessing also goes out to Harry and Ginny, who in turn welcome Teddy Lupin as one of their own. Thank
1: you so much. Isabel, I have to say, my heart broke when you said what your peers in high school said. I can't imagine how much that must have hurt in the midst of all your grief. And I'm so sorry that you've heard those kinds of comments, both then and, and now. And I'm really grateful for your voice memo, because I think everything you say is true. When I was just first engaged to be married, but before I was a father, or I thought about being a father, one of our good friends brought their newborn child who was only, you know, maybe a month or so over. And and I held this child who I had just met. And in that moment, I just knew that if her mom walked out of the room that moment and left her with us, that I would be able to love her. And there would be that love would be as deep and as abiding as as any other love. And I'm grateful for that moment and also grateful for your for your voicemail for reminding us of the truth of how strong and abiding these loves of kinship, whether biological or not, really are.
2: Yeah. I mean, we also see it reflected in policy, right? Yeah, There's required parental leave if you have a child biologically, but if you adopt a child, which obviously takes a lot of time and adjustment, like it's not legally mandated that you have to give people time off and most organizations don't. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And as someone who, you know, obviously I've never had children biologically, so I don't know if I love my stepdaughters, quote unquote, as much as if they were my own, but if I loved them anymore, I think everyone would find it oppressive. So I <laughs> I, I, don't think I am capable of loving anything more yeah. than I love these two kids who not only like aren't mine, but they have a mom who is a wonderful mom. And, you know, like, yeah. it's not like they need a mom. But yeah, this idea that we can only love things that are ours. And the Harry Potter series really believes in these blood ties in a very strange way yeah isabel thank you so much for that really wonderful blessing it's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost Angelica, who was 92, a wife, mother, grandmother, and great grandmother. Marco Panuccio, who was 48, was warm, brilliant, and larger than life. Cecilia Estoesta, who was 82, a fierce and beloved matriarch, and is terribly missed. Sandy Cecilia, who was 52, a harm reduction leader, community organizer, and best friend. Mary Collins, who was 66, a loving aunt and a mental health advocate. Brian Raymond, who was 59, an uncle, brother, and father. David Gandel, who is 68, and a beloved father, grandfather, uncle, and OBGYN. Patrick, who is 43, and a lover of games and T-Rexes. Anne Christensen Brown, who is 58, a mother, grandmother, and devourer of books. and Lisa Kohler, who was 46, a friend, teacher, and trivia wizard. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters in this chapter. Who would you like to bless?
1: I would like to bless Flitwick. Uh, Not only because he is the head of my beloved Ravenclaw house, but right at the end of this chapter, after Harry's broom is destroyed by the Whomping Willow, we're told in just a single line that it's Flitwick who goes and retrieves the broom and brings it back to Harry, which is to me a remarkable act of care for a teacher who barely knows Harry. I mean, he has him in class, but he's not in his house, right? Knows that the loss of this broom means a lot to Harry, knows that Harry is in the hospital after having this terrible fall. He goes to this, you know, potentially risky situation and then gets the remains of this broom from the Whomping Willow to bring this useless broom. Like all the only value it has is sentimental. But I don't know it's just, to me, it's a touching moment. And I just made me, made me fond of Flitwick for paying attention to that and believing that. This broom was not just garbage to be forgotten now that it was shattered, but was actually something that he wanted to present to Harry, even if it would bring Harry some sadness. So just a blessing for for Flitwick. Who are you blessing, Vanessa?
2: I am blessing Mr. Cedric Diggory, who we meet in this chapter. And it's just such a lovely reflection of him that we hear in the hospital wing, which is that Cedric catches the snitch. In part because Harry falls because of the dementors. And the text tells us that Cedric tried to not win and tried to give it back and say, I don't want to win like this. Yeah. And it's just real sportsmanlike. And I can just imagine that feeling of like, oh no, like if I would have known, I wouldn't have done this. Right. And I yeah. just think it, it is. A wonderful introduction to Cedric, who we will spend more time with in the next book. But you really get a sense of him as a tremendous athlete, but also as a wonderful person with a deep moral code.
1: Vanessa, next week we are reading Book 3, Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map. And I think for you, I would like to select the theme of confusion.
2: Well, Matt, I can't wait to read next week's chapter of Jane Eyre through the theme of
1: confusion. (laughs) Exactly. Nailed it.
2: I got it. <laughs> Just one reminder before we give our thanks, and that is that we are launching a new pilot program where we are going to be talking about reading as a transformational practice for a full school year. You can find out more about that by going to notsorryworks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is the great and good Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced and endured by AJ Uramas. And our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast.
1: Thanks this week to Isabel for their voice memo, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper DeKyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those that you have loved and lost this week. Good try marrying those together. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for trying to redeem my ridiculous association. What's step three? I was taught by the best. <laughs>